Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. What do food sovereignty and decolonizing diets, both incredibly political and intimate ideas, really look like? Especially since I was raised growing food with my mother, I'm immensely honored to be sharing this dialogue. So many folks who are sincerely seeking solutions to the world's problems are surrounded by diversions and false starts that further injustice in the name of eradicating it. For example, lots of folks are spending countless dollars and time on the Eurocentric, appropriative permaculture movement when they could be supporting indigenous-led, decolonial, land-based education. How about we not perpetuate problems in our attempts at problem-solving? Reconnecting to the land in a decolonial way is vital in this age of climate catastrophe, ecocide, and neocolonialism. Supporting the self-determination of the original peoples of a land base and stewarding the place properly. To aid in our learning about these topics, I'm pleased to be in dialogue with a fellow community-based educator whose project has been extraordinarily nourishing and inspirational for me to volunteer at periodically over the years. Uncle Dean Wilhelm is the co-founder and executive director of Ho'okua Aina, nestled in the Ahupua'a of Kailua at Kapalai in Maunawili on the island of Oahu, this nonprofit organization uses Hawaiian traditions of kalo or taro cultivation to improve the lives of today's youth and build a healthy community. It's a manifestation of Dean and Michelle Wilhelm's vision to create a gathering place for people in the community to connect with and care for the aina or land, perpetuate Hawaiian culture through the cultivation and preparation of kalo, and to be a place that would ultimately bring healing to people, especially at-risk youth. Since 2007, the Wilhelms, along with a hui, or group of collaborators and community volunteers, have restored 7.6 acres to be abundant and productive. 
Today, the Lo'i, or Wetland Taro Patch, is an ideal outdoor learning environment for Aina-based education. They're literally rebuilding lives from the ground up by empowering youth to realize the meaning and purpose of their lives by helping them develop life strategies and skills through the cultivation of kalo and Hawaiian values-based coaching. And just a heads up, this recording was taken out on the land, so you'll hear some animals and work being done in the background. Uncle Dean, thank you so much again for your time and energy and being yeah. willing to share about this amazing project with folks. Okay. Can yeah. you explain to our listeners a little bit about where we are, please? So we are, the specific place is called Kapalai, and we are in the district of Kailua, or the Ahupua of Kailua, uh, on the windward side of the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's where we are right now, and that's the specific place. How about this lo'i in particular? Can you share with us a little bit about this project? Yeah, so um, so lo'i is a, a taro patch, and taro was the main staple food for the Hawaiian people. It's it's a staple throughout Oceania, um, and also in other places of the world. I think the taro is grown China, in China. They grow it the most, but I know that in India, a lot of places in Africa, South America now, and it's been introduced into the Caribbean. I hear the Cubans grow a lot, even in even in Florida. Actually, they grow more taro than than us here. Mm. But taro was the main staple eaten, and I would I would argue I'm probably a little biased, but that the Hawaiians really took the the growing of taro to the, the highest elevation, you know, mm. um, in the sense of really honing in on that. Unfortunately, today there's not that much, not as, not nearly. It's just a fraction of the amount of kalo that was grown um, in the old days. And for a number of reasons, it is no longer really the, the common staple for people here. You know, it's been supplanted by rice, which is a, a much cheaper carbohydrate to buy and, and eat, but not as healthy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, this project here started really not because we wanted to be taro farmers or because we felt we needed to, you know, increase the production of taro in Hawaii by any means. We, we had a garden at home, my wife and I. We always kind of had a garden. We've been married 23 years now. And at one point we started growing kalo, and we actually were, were not even eating the staple part, the corm of it. We were just using the leaf to make um, a traditional dish called laulau. And I, I relate it to kind of the, like there's a Greek dish with the grape leaves, you know, mm-hmm. I forget what that's called. Bulma, right? Yeah, and right. so it's similar to that, I guess, in, in look. But instead we use the taro leaf, which is similar to spinach. And then we'll usually fill it with some type of meat, either pork or chicken or fish or beef. And what happened is we started, um, every time we'd have enough leaves to, to pick, um, it's, it's something you don't just make for your immediate family. You kind of make a bunch, you know, like 50 to 100 for me. If I'm going to go through the process, I want to make a lot. So I'd call friends over and say, hey, we're making lao lao if you guys want to come over. And next thing you know, our carport would be filled with, you know, people there helping to cut. Well, first we'd pick the leaves from the garden and then wash them and prepare the food. And then it takes like about two and a half hours to steam, steam the lao lao up. And then of course we eat together and then I play music, I play Hawaiian music. And so these impromptu kind of music hula parties would, would take place. And we realized it was such a draw. Like people, they weren't just there to eat lao lao, to, to just fill themselves up with food. They were really there for, for the social aspect and to make connections, yeah. And I think for all of us, it felt empowering to like grow our own leaves and food and to eat that it just seemed to taste better than the leaves we had to go and buy from you know another farm or, or from the store so we saw it as a, a real powerful tool to 
to just gather people and that there was this desire on the part of people in general to just make connections kind of surrounded around the dinner table, you know, and the power of that gathering. Anytime there's a festival around the world, it's really the center of it is food, right? So it's a powerful bringing together of community. I'm a, I'm a teacher by trade, and I taught in our public school system for almost 15 years, but I taught at-risk kids for the majority of those years. And um, actually, my last five years in the state school system, I taught at uh, in the prison. So the school that I was at, we serviced the incarcerated youth, and I taught the incarcerated boys there for five years. So that was kind of always my, um, my heart, was to teach those kids. And... You know, unfortunately, it's mostly Hawaiian kids uh, who are who are in our in our in our system, and you know, relative to the, to the, the population of I think Hawaiians are like 20% of the population in Hawaii. You know, the the numbers of them incarceration rates are from 60 to 70%. I think it's something that high. So it's skewed, you know. So anyway, um, I have a heart for my Hawaiian community, and so what I was doing there is actually I had an a class that I was teaching. Um, well, first I was teaching in English line and having a hard time making connections with a lot of the kids. And so what I started doing is I just cleared an area outside for the kids and we started growing taro, kalo. Then I brought in literature about that and we discuss it and talk and learn about the growing of kalo in some Hawaiian culture as a means to do language arts. Um, and then the culminating activity would be us making lao lao together, you know, this dish. And I realized that so few of them had ever um, made that before, never really knew what it was, and that was kind of shocking for me. Mm. But yet when they finished making it, they would eat it and they would share it with others, and they took such pride in it. And so I really saw that as a powerful teaching tool. And so my wife and I, we kind of got this grand idea that, wow, what if we were able to create a space, because we were slowly outgrowing our little garden area and space, what if we were able to have a gathering place that we could bring community in, you know, particularly, you know, the challenge, whatever you want to term it, at-risk kids. And, you know, by the way, that's that's a big group, you know. Mm -hmm. we, we tend to think of them only as the kids who get maybe locked up, but mm -hmm. at-risk kids are everywhere, and they're in private schools, and mm -hmm. they're affluent kids, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum. But what if we created a space that people could make connections not only to other people, but now start to connect to the land and and the food there that is being grown, as well as the cultural connections, you know. And whether Hawaiian or not, we all stem from someplace. And the goal here is to try to have people take pride in who they are and where they come from, you know, and use this as a means, use the, use the host culture and the values as a means to teach. So that was our big idea. And it's a long story as to the journey we took to eventually sell our house and then purchase this place and kind of went on this long you know, exodus journey. Um, but we were we feel so fortunate to have arrived here and we were able to purchase this place over 10 years ago. And we're, I guess, in the process of realizing that vision, you know, it has become a gathering place. And ultimately, you know, it's about connecting. Um, we feel that people come here, there's a spiritual connection for many people and I'm not you know, whatever that spiritual connection is, I'm not going to define it for you. But, you know, for me, I connect to Keakua, to God, um, and feel His presence here. Um, but it's also a place to connect and do life differently for people, you know, because life doesn't happen around our food systems here anymore, whereas that's how life really happened. And it still happens in other places of the world. Um, 
and so it's a it's a different people the conversations people have in the tarot patch are far different than in other areas and I've noticed that and so connections are made with people and then lastly you know connections with the land and, you know we talk about um, needing to you know, now there's a, this awareness that we gotta we've gotta like care for the planet yeah and we're realizing the limited resources and how we've really as a human race species you know we've really done so many things to harm it and so it's an opportunity for people to come and, and take part at least a little even if it's just a one-time experience to at least have a mindset that we need to like start to be purposeful in taking action um, in whatever small ways to start to care for you know at least care for our backyard our own backyard and if we can all start to do that then you know we will make an impact and so and so that's happening that's happening here, and uh, we formed a nonprofit about seven years ago to sustain ourselves. So I was able to step away from the from teaching in the schools. This was three and a half years ago, so it's relatively new. You know, we were we've been building this place out from day one, kind of on our own energy and effort. And so, you know, I actually had a few interns who were here who worked here longer than us. Were getting paid before me. You know, we had we had gotten a grant to pay interns, but never to myself and my wife has only been working for two years now actually but we so most of it was just kind of you know pro bono I guess but to really get it going forward and now we feel like we're in a really good place we we found so so much support um, and that support seems to be growing so we feel very thankful for that um, and excited as to possibilities not only here but partnering up with other organizations because it's not just about the success of what we do here but it's about collaborating with other like-minded organizations and people so that we can make um, a collective impact because that's the only way that this that we're going to survive and, and, and flourish is if collectively there are more and more places like this and that's how we're going to be able to change paradigms I believe within the way we think and the way we do life you know simple things like how can you support what we do here well you can start to change your palate a little bit you know I tell people that what if you what if you you know we eat 21 meals a week roughly give or take what if we eat just like three three of those 21 meals you incorporate a little bit of taro into it you can cook it sweet you can cook it savory but what if you just started to change your palate and you took a purposeful mindset to I'm going to eat some kalo and everybody did that. You know, then it would, of course, increase the demand, and then tarot farmers would be more encouraged, and, and you'd see more things happening. So you don't need to necessarily do this every day to support that kind of paradigm, and that's what we're really trying to do here. Um, and those connections and everything, it's really so that individuals will come. Ultimately, you know, we want we want these connections to be made so that first it starts with the individual, so that the, there's a, a greater sense of well-being for the individual which means collectively it's a, a greater sense of well-being in our community and that's really what it's about so well-being is I think the bottom line and um, Hawaii is a, a beautiful place we're blessed to live here uh, it has it changed tremendously and it's changing as we speak real fast um, in ways that ways that I don't want to see it change and so it's it's a, it's an opportunity to push back and to ground people in values and, and to me it doesn't matter if you're Hawaiian or not if you now call Hawaii home and you're invested here then then there's certain values that we should all hold dear to us and we should all be purposeful in um, 
in living out. So that's, um, I guess, the larger mission here. Mm -hmm. oh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I'm so struck by your telling the story of transitioning from working in the sort of mainstream educational system mm -hmm. as a teacher to then yeah. holding space for this kind of education. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that that connection is quite clear to folks that haven't been able to learn from and with the land in community in a way that's nourishing yeah. um, encapsulating all that you just spoke to that's so profound and so necessary if you ask me mm. could you please talk a little bit more about the educational component of how you see this project we work with school groups and, and of course um, that's who we want to touch and, and they have the greatest stake at it because it's their future you know I mean anybody my age and older who doesn't get what we're doing what we're doing here I don't waste my time with because mm. we're going to be phasing out sooner than later it's the next generation and the young kids who that's who my I, I'm just I just need to be shrewd with my time and energy and so that's who I focus on um, but when it comes to that mindset of yes I think this again I don't want to fault people for just being disconnected because we live in that world, and um, you know I've grown in my connections, and so I can't say that I'd be where I'm at today had I not, had we not chosen this path. So I, I don't fault people for that, but I do challenge, and I I do my best to encourage those who, you know, who live their lives um, as an example. For most, the greater part of American society, people live, and even here in Hawaii now, we have the best climate in the world, but people are living more and more in climate-controlled houses. They walk into their garage that's closed into their climate-controlled car. They drive to work, get out and in the building, and work in a climate-controlled office for the better part of their day, jump back in their climate-controlled car to go back to their climate-controlled <laughs> house. Some people, I don't even know if they notice whether it's sunny or if it's rainy or yeah. if there's... How cold it is, what, yeah. way, what direction the wind blows, uh, let alone ever contemplated the food that they're eating that it actually has to be grown someplace and that people have to put a lot of care and effort into the growing of food, that it takes a tremendous amount of energy to do that. The larger proportion of society lives in that world. Um, can we fault them? I don't think we can, but I think we should definitely challenge that and encourage getting connected to place, understanding that there's this process of food and that, you know, it's, it's, it's more than a commodity. And I think that that's what it has become. You know, the growing of food has become a commodity. And, and I think when you had small farmers, they took pride in, in what they grew because they knew the people who they were feeding. So they took pride in the apples that they grew. Mm -hmm. or whatever it was because there's that there's that one-to-one -one connection but when you don't know where your food is or where it even comes from there's no pride necessarily in the growing of it because you could care less who grows it it's just what you, you just want to get the highest value monetary value off of that food and as the consumer of it you don't give a rip what kind of conditions they worked in to grow the food mm -hmm. you just want to get it as cheap as you can mm -hmm. as fresh and cheap and good as you can so we're in this system that we're, we really don't care much about either end of the spectrum so when there's no aloha there it's it's hard to live in that value mindset and so I think it, it is important for decision makers in the business world who are the finance people and the boardroom people to start to make connections if they are shaping the future you know for me I can't 
I, I'm not even going to talk about the world and where the world's going. My stake is here in Hawaii. So, and, and again, I, what CNN plays and what Trump said today or what I, I could, I really, I follow it, but I could really care less. What matters for me most is what happens here. And so when it comes to the leadership here or the, or the decision makers here, it's challenging them. It's challenging them to understand these types of things that for me are imperative. And it's something that unless there's a collective voice articulating that in unison, we're just, you know, this is kind of a nicety. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of education. Oh, how nice. Right. My kids went, you know, the kids mm-hmm. went to the tarot branch. <laughs> got to see how those Hawaiians way back when right. kind of did things like, like we went to a museum or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what this is about. Yum. This is about using this as an example of what, what, what was, what can be, and what should be in the future, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everybody thinks the same way I do. And sure. that's okay. Sure. You know, it's curable. <laughs> we, we can cure that. Uh-huh, you know? Right. So we shouldn't give up hope. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so that's really, you know, our approach. Um, we provide an opportunity, whether it comes to young kids, first grade, or whether it comes to a retiree who's come home after, like this one woman who's right. lived on the mm-hmm. Hawaiian, yeah, who grew right. up in the mainland, who now comes home and wants to just connect to her place. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's why she's here. Mm-hmm. So um, she's been educated as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I refer to this as the modern day classroom. Yes. And this is the cutting edge classroom. Right yes. Here. Right. <laughs> exactly. Thank um, you for that. And that's my, uh, what was a person once shared that. And I said, I went up to them after, after they shared, this is the modern day classroom. They were at another place. Mm-hmm. I asked, I asked her if I could, um, if she had coined the term, and if I could use it. <laughs> so I asked permission. <laughs> You're going to have permission. to cite her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked permission. <laughs> so this is what we refer to as the modern classroom, though. Right. And it sure does seem so connected to broader necessities in terms of, say, food sovereignty or decolonizing diets, yeah. taking it back to wellness, like yeah. you spoke to. Could you talk maybe a little bit about either of those pieces? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's all connected. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a whole bunch of things. And so food sovereignty, you know, why, why, why don't we eat the food that grows here? Why were Hawaiians able to grow all of their food um, and we feel like there's no way we can grow our own food here. Like there's tracts of land that nobody wants to grow food. And it's because it's, again, it's been commodified. Mm-hmm. And it's just seen for the dollar value. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to seeing, there's, there's, if we look at the, you know, I don't know who it was, probably the Stanfordian people of the world who came up with the triple and now the quadruple bottom line. Yeah, right. If we start to see value, not only in economics, but the social, the environmental, and now the cultural value. Growing food in our in our area covers all of that, and if I believe there's, I'm sure there's some kind of spreadsheet that could figure it out that the, the actual value in that far exceeds using that track of land to build homes on, mm-hmm. because that's the only mindset that people today, decision makers, business makers have when they look at land, because they only see that as the way they can derive value from that piece of land, and it's so completely contrary to the way our kupuna, our ancestors, saw the value of land. In the land was life, yeah? Mm-hmm. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness or in doing right. Mm. Yeah. So if we do right and we care for the land, that's that's where that's where the strength comes from. 
Uh, but we don't have that mindset anymore. And the dominant mindset is it's just, you know, so you have guys who are making decisions on large tracts of land who've never set foot there. They just have this map or they Google it or I don't know how they make their decisions. They have no clue, but it's just a commodity. Mm-hmm. And it's who can be the shrewdest, mm-hmm. most aggressive to develop it. And so, hence, we have these, uh, we have this food system that we're completely dependent upon food coming from the outside because it's far cheaper to grow, at least right now. Mm-hmm. You know, but the price of fuel and everything goes up, or if there's political right. crisis or unrest in other places, who knows? And then we're going to be like Puerto Rico, as mm-hmm. an example, or if there's mm-hmm. a big, big catastrophe. Mm-hmm heaven forbid a nuclear fallout with North Korea right now what if that I mean that's going to disrupt a lot of people Mm -hmm. or it could potentially do that Mm -hmm. Um, what happens then because you know right now we think oh we'll just get the mats in they'll keep bringing well if there's disruption there they're going to take care of themselves first right before they take care of Hawaii so um, we're in a very precarious place but yet we live kind of in this matrix world of you know we're gonna, food's gonna always be on at Costco. If I, you know, it's always gonna be on the shelves. There's still places in the world where you go to the stores, no more food on the shelves. You gotta mm-hmm. hustle to get there to just buy the food. Mm-hmm. But we have no concept of that. And if the apples are on the shelves, they all need to be the same, you know? Right. You know, if your apples, oh, this apple's too sour, you know, this one's too ripe, it's too sweet, it's mushy already. You know, we're just we're so spoiled. Right. So, Food sovereignty, really needing to take responsibility for our own well-being in the sense of needing to needing to first be aware that that's the case here and then start to take collective efforts. Because if it is a value, then it should be a value that's supported from the top down. It should be a tax incentive. I don't know. I don't have the mindset of how you create incentives, but there should be ways to be able to do that mm-hmm. so that we're not incentivize Mm -hmm. food sovereignty is one you know we just gotta take control and then the um, colonization of you know I forget you put it really well the diet decolonizing diet decolonizing diet yeah so like for me spam is like the ultimate in like colonization Mm. and when I have so many Hawaiians who just like it's like they want to relish that as if that was that's like Hawaiian or something it just boggles my mind it's, it is. It's, it's a colonized mindset of, of eating food that has been um, processed for us because it's cheap. And then making that become our staple food that then becomes the comfort food that then becomes the food that we then crave. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's quite tragic when it's right. like that, when it's rice. And, you know, the Spam Musubi is like the ultimate in... And, you know, I don't know what they put in Spam, but, I mean, it's, it must be like drugs or something because I could, I could, it's like TV. I mean, mm. I could mm. sit dumbfounded in front of a TV for like four hours like this. Mm. If, if I, I'm like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could also eat a Spam Musubi like mm-hmm. anybody else every day. Mm-hmm. I don't know, again, there's like some kind of drug in there mm-hmm. that makes me want to eat it. Mm-hmm. But we have to like make choices, yeah, to be smart. And, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And just just say no, I guess. I don't know. What is it? See it like, you know, see it like a drug. Just mm-hmm. say no. Mm-hmm. You know, the boob tube, as Jack Johnson calls it, right. for the TV. And, mm-hmm. and the can of spam. Right. Um, but, um, and so I think the key to it is really is, is educate, educating. And then, you know, you have to provide other alternatives. Because, it, 
you're swimming uphill if people if they if they're clueless you know so one of the cool things that I do here is with Ulu we have Ulu and you know Ulu is another staple it wasn't as big of a staple here in Hawaii as in, as in other parts of Oceania Ulu is actually more of a staple in the rest of Oceania than, than it was in Hawaii um, and again that's because I, I attribute it to we have we have really well watered lands constant year-round uh, very rich in water and we have the plains to grow tremendous amounts of kalo relative to coral atolls and other places. So that became the dominant culture here and hence kalo superseded ulu which again in other places is ulu is the dominant. But ulu is like it's like a no-brainer. You plant the tree and it it makes like some people say like between three to a thousand pounds of ulu in a season in a year <laughs> for doing nothing. It's a complete it's an awesome starch. It's a complex carbohydrate. Everyone should have an ulu tree in their backyard as far right. as I'm concerned. But nobody knows how to eat it. We, we Hawaiians, I'm just going to speak on behalf, as a Hawaiian, on behalf of Hawaiians, we've forgotten how to eat ulu. It's really sad. Mm. And, and Hawaiians will let ulu follow. They'll just give it away to other, other um, you know, ethnic groups here, Samoan, Tongan, Micronesian, as if it's, you know, like rubbish food. Talk about being colonized, you know. Mm. They still understand the value in it. Mm. And so, um, so one of the things I do here is I'll pick an ulu off of a tree for kids. And I'll take it and I'll, I'll cook it in a wok and I'll make with oil. And so it's not the traditional way to cook it. It's not the healthiest way. But man, it lights up some eyebrows, I can tell you that. Because when I make ulu chips, everybody, I don't care who you are, everyone loves the ulu chips. I haven't had one person who's eaten and go, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's way, I think it's way better than french fries. <laughs> so just being aware, of, and so just demonstrating that this is it. I can, like, I'm picking it off the tree. <laughs> Five minutes later, I'm cutting it. It's in the oil, and you're eating it within less than 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like, talk about fast food. That's faster than driving from here to McDonald's, getting french fries and coming back mm, home. Thank you. So, um, so I think, you know, a part of it is education. We need to um, teach people, like, the resources we have and the possibilities we have. Like, if you grow a tree five years from now, it's going to take about four to five years, you could have, like, plenty ulu, and you could eat it a thousand different ways, sweet or savory, like taro. And what if you started to incorporate that in three meals? Mm -hmm. So you start to incorporate kalo for three meals and ulu for three meals. Mm -hmm. It's still not even a third of the meals we eat a week, just as a, a kind of a baseline to just start that out. So I'm conscious of that myself. And, you know, we've gotten to the point where I don't think about it anymore. I mean, it's just a part of our normal diet. Um, I'm eating food from here, I'd say, more than half the time. You know, I have, a, I have a wide palate. My dad was from Europe. He was a chef. I was introduced to all kinds of culinary onos, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm probably going to continue to eat other foods. So I don't know that, see, in my grandparents' days, if you grew up just eating poi every day, I could probably, I could eat poi every day if that's all I had. But if I can change up, I'm going to change up. And we have that. That's the exciting thing with today. We have that, those possibilities. But, so I'm being realistic in a sense. You know, I don't, I don't eat poi every day mm -hmm. uh, or, or ulu, but... Um, again, what if we ate half of our meals? We had kalo, ulu, um, sweet potato, or bananas. To me, I'm convinced that here in Hawaii, we could be food sufficient if we grew those four things and, and were purposeful in eating those. Because those you can also then feed to the pigs, yeah? And then you can get your own meat. Mm -hmm. um, and then supplement that with other greens that can be grown here. We don't need to be eating kale from California, mm -hmm. but we can grow our own kale for that matter. Mm -hmm. But there's other things in greens and healthies that can grow right here. 
that we can source right here. So it's, it's very doable. Mm-hmm. We have the, most, the, the best climate to grow food all year round. It's just a matter of the will of the people. Mm-hmm. And there's not that will yet. Mm. But I believe it's growing. And mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful to address those two things, food sovereignty and right. uh, the decolonization of our, our diets. Yeah. yeah, thank you for it's that. so important. Right. Well, around the spam musubi example, which is yeah. such a good example yeah. because yeah. food is so intimate for people. Yeah. It's so personal because we have the stories of yeah. gathering with our family and it's right. associated with memories of holidays and special occasions. Yeah. How do you deal with something like some folks having become addicted to spam, for example? Yeah. It's funny, but it's yeah. also so serious, right? No, it is. It yeah. is. Yeah. I remember it was powerful. Once I was in New Zealand and I was at a, um, it was for the, um, what's called WIPSI conference, which stands for the World Indigenous People's, People's Education. Education Conference. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Oh, you got it. Great conference, right? Yeah, so I was down there, <laughs> real powerful. And, and there was this, um, I happened to go to this one dinner I got invited to, I was stoked to be there. And there was this family of, they were performers, Maori, so they would sing and kind of, they would do dances and, and songs and they would narrate throughout. And they came to this one point where they narrated, um, and it was the, the, the father, he was old, and he had his sons and daughters or daughters-in-law, and he started doing this kind of like, kind of like powerful kind of haka, I, I, I tear up even today just thinking about it, but he started, the whole thing was like, why do we get upset that we have diabetes in our family? Nobody forces the fork into my mouth. Yeah, why do we do this when, you know, it's basically, no blame anybody. Mm. You know, we want to blame them or, or, or spam or anybody else for our diabetes and our health. Nobody puts that, shoves that food down your throat. Mm. So you know what? Start to take personal responsibility, in other words. You know, and I'm to that point too. I'm, I'm over other Hawaiians talking about Hawaiians being on the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and the most incarcerated, and all the health problems. I'm sorry, but I'm very tired of hearing that. We have to take personal responsibility because nobody is going to take responsibility for us. People can help us. They can support us. There can be all these programs and everything like that. But if you're in AA, yeah, you're struggling with alcohol, you can go to all the programs you want. But if you choose to just drink a beer at that one time, or you can, then you know what? It's all on you, man. And so I'm, I'm over the... I'm over the welfare system mindset mm. of helping our people because I believe that it has actually caused the colonization, mm. to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. It's about personal responsibility. And you talk to older Hawaiians, they don't look for the welfare check. They, that was never something that was a part of their mindset. But yet there's a many Hawaiians today, my age and younger, who feel a sense of entitlement because they're Hawaiian, because they've been so wronged in their lives. You know what? Um, it's about taking personal responsibility. Everybody choosing. So I challenge people, and I joke around with it. I, I'll bring it up sometimes when we have groups about, and I'll talk about carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates, and I'll go into this, you know, a complex versus an empty carb, and I'll make a joke out of it about spam. You know, mm-hmm. like, like, well, I'm glad none of you guys said spam's a, a main staple food. You know, because some I've heard kids say, "What's one staple food? A food you eat every day." Oh, spam! Like, mm-hmm. oh, no, brother. We get, mm-hmm. we get a hard time for you. I feel for you. Mm. And so I'll say, you know what? When it comes to spam, you guys, um, you know what? Spam is on special occasion food. Only eat it on Christmas morning. 
But don't ever <laughs> eat it any time from that. Just make it a special occasion food. Um, and then I try to bring an awareness to it. And, and you know, I don't know how, how impactful that is, but I think it makes people think when you start mm-hmm. to say um, that. And then if I do have time say, for, like, say, cooking classes, because if you're talking economics, you got to respect that. I mean, I got four kids, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a load when you got to cook for, mm-hmm. you know, for six people every day. And, um, you know, a lot of people who are on the socioeconomic, the bottom of it, a lot of them have big families, mm-hmm. you know. So you got to think about food and costs, and it's, it's right there. But I'll often price it out. If I have the time, price out a can of Spam and just a regular piece of pork. Yeah. It's cheaper to buy a regular piece of pork, mm. put salt and pepper on it, and mm-hmm. fry it for the same amount of time that you fry Spam, and you get a higher quality of food mm-hmm. that's doesn't have all of the the yuckies in there the preservatives Mm -hmm. the stuff that's really really unhealthy for us right so i think it's bringing awareness but then you got to provide you can't just tell people um no go eat that and expect they're going to go shop at whole foods Mm -hmm. because they don't want that capacity Mm -hmm. yeah so i think there's a real disconnect um right now we're not providing alternatives for them to to change diet Mm -hmm. you have to provide like alternatives for it and, and give people like a chance you got to set them up for success mm-hmm. right so again if um, if you eat rice 21 meals out of the out of the week change up maybe just three spend the extra money buy some kalo mm-hmm. it'll cost you more than rice yeah mm-hmm. find some ulu mm-hmm. yeah or be purposeful in like asking the neighbor down the street who not eating ulu hey you mind if i just had a couple of ulu off the tree most people are going to say yeah brother take one mm-hmm. ulu not a problem right mm-hmm. if you get plenty you're not eating them all mm-hmm. because that's the thing with ulu you know ulu you you get one tree you can't eat them all yourself you even have a hard time giving them away mm-hmm. so why don't we be more sharing and more purposeful in that right and 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 then in turn you're developing relationship with your neighbor mm-hmm. you know by inquiring and then so instead of 21 meals of rice, you got 18 meals of rice. Mm-hmm. And you're incorporating ulu. Mm-hmm. You know? Slow and steady. Slow. Right. Gotta be slow, but gotta be something where can. Mm-hmm. You know? Because they're not gonna shop Whole Foods. Yeah. And, and they're not gonna, if they haven't ever eaten kale salad before, they're not gonna eat kale salad. Mm-hmm. You gotta break them in slowly. So, one of the things I did with kids up at HYCF when it comes to the diet mindset is, um, we had a garden, so we grew kalo and stuff like that, and we cooked all the time. That was my carrot. You know, and have the kids from 8 to, like, um, like 12.30. So, like, four and a half hours. And by 12.30, they're hungry, you know, because it's lunchtime. So we'd cook right before that, yeah, because they hung so. But the, the rule was that we could eat anything, and we'd bring some other things. We'd make laula, of course, we'd bring it in pork, uh, which we made a lot of. I used to eat plenty of laula <laughs> because I'd be making, like, every other week seemed like just to keep them jazzed about what they were doing and as an incentive if they worked well gotta give them the carrot yeah um, but we would eat other things in the garden I mean we grew eggplant and lettuce broccoli we even grew once um, a lot of string beans cucumbers tomatoes and the kids would just tell me straight out oh mister I don't eat that kind of stuff I never did ever eat um, an eggplant before they just tell me straight out I'm not gonna mm-hmm. eat that <laughs> okay ba you don't need to eat them we're gonna make them for ourselves but I make them ono, you know. Eleven thirty, not quite lunchtime. We eating. They looking at us. They still get half hour before they get go go eat lunch. Uh, maybe I'm gonna try a little bit. Yeah, but just try a little bit. You can try. My bad. Why can't I have a little bit more? <laughs> uh-huh. Easing their way in, right? <laughs> hey, hunger is a powerful, powerful right. uh, motivator. You know, 
So if you provide opportunities, like what we'll do here is if I do make that kind of aina food, is I make them over here, and I tell people, no go bring anything else, like because you know you, as much as people will eat lao lao and luau stew and poi, if there's a whole smorgasbord of like, you know, chicken katsu and all and and mac salad and all this other kind of stuff, they're gonna eat that because that's what they're used to. Mm-hmm. But they come out and only get luau stew, and poi. Telling you, they're gonna eat that and mm-hmm. they're gonna really enjoy that. And mm-hmm. then now it's like, oh, wow, that was so ono. And what we have to start doing, is, especially with Hawaiian food, is it's not it's not a food that should be uh, like a like a festive occasion. You know, it becomes like, oh, I eat Hawaiian food when you know on summertime when I get you know my wedding, my all the graduation parties and mm-hmm. and weddings come up, then I go eat Hawaiian food. Mm-hmm. Oh, Hawaiian food. You don't need most of what you're eating. Not Hawaiian food anyway. When you right. go and eat chicken, long rice, lomi salmon, mm-hmm. rice, mm-hmm. Uh, is not Hawaiian food. Mm-hmm. But that's what we've made it mm-hmm. become. Hawaiian food is just like kuaina, like simple, just some luau leaf, stew them up. Maybe if you get some fish, put them in. You know, even just put some salt in it and, mm-hmm. and eat that with some chunks of kalo. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. But that's the kind of food that we need to start eating on a regular occasion mm-hmm. um, and introducing people that can. Yeah, making uh, foods that are ancestrally meaningful, not just a special occasion. And when you're going to do the thing, doing the thing. So is that even whether it's here Hawaiian food to begin with, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's associated with Hawaiian food or like right. on the continent, fry bread is American Indian food. When it's like, really? White flour? Was yeah, that lard? Really? Yeah, Come on yeah, now. Yeah, I don't understand right. that yeah, mindset. Yeah. So, And I guess they got to spam Sure. Uh, epidemic sure. going on there sure. too in, in right. most of in many mm-hmm. of the um, mm-hmm. right uh, reservations. reservations from yep. what I've heard. I Absolutely. Don't know. Right. Yeah, there was this local kid who was at school over here at, at Kalaheo and he said he and his friend went up and they started doing sp- like spam musubis somewhere in like Arizona or someplace mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, we we got this spam musubi business and we've opened up a couple of restaurants here and there. I'm like, what? spam musubi? Like <laughs> okay, that many locals up there? They're like, no, 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 on the reservations, bro. Yeah. So it's kind of like, like he, you know, here he is a young guy, you know, entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. making some, right. going, oh, brother, like, oh. Sure. I kind of didn't know how to end the conversation with him. Right. I wasn't, you know, real stoked on it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the point of these conversations for yeah. me is so many folks have uh, energy and, you know, maybe are entrepreneurial, but yeah. they haven't quite thought through they or have, haven't quite gotten all the feedback that might yeah. be helpful to really ensure that they're having a good impact. Yeah, and that's what it's about, right? It's the yeah. impact. And yeah. so, again, it's changing the mindset that if what we're doing isn't, like, beneficial and making a positive impact, then maybe we should really think through whether we should do that or not. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is because everybody's driven by the dollar value, and if we generate dollar values, then we must be doing something good, right? Is the mindset. So mm-hmm. completely contrary to, you know, living pono. You know, around that idea of having a good impact, I'm sure that this space has been so healing for so many folks. Could you share maybe any observations or reflections that you've had about the kind of impact that being able to come here and learn here and contribute to this place has had for folks? We've had reflections and, you know, we've had thousands and thousands of people come through here. And it's it's really amazing because, you know, I'll do a little talk story and teaching and you know sometimes I joke around and just kind of have fun so that the group you know gets an experience but I gotta say that most of what I would say most of the impact that people have doesn't come from any of what I do Mm. it just comes from being here it's the land that impacts people Mm -hmm. the setting the place 
maybe the camaraderie, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors, I think, that come into it. And, and I don't often get to hear, you know, the stories. And, and, but, but we have heard stories of people, like, just welling up in tears of coming and jumping in the mud. And I bet if you were to ask that Hawaiian auntie who left today, yeah. have her sit down and, like, so right. share with me, mm-hmm. what did you feel today? I mean, you're going to open a floodgate of emotions, yeah. guaranteed. Yeah. Um, that right now, even even she's probably not even able to process at the time. Yeah. Sure. And I think there's a lot of people who come through here who who aren't able to process a lot of those things. Uh, you know, and I I would say for myself as an example, I once went to Kaala Farms out, out in this is in Waianae, 22 years ago, and sat there, and there's a gentleman by the name of Eric Enos. And he's not too many guys who I'd call like my heroes, but he's one of them. And uh, he was there talking about, he was here, it was a Saturday, he was talking to educators. That was kind of his group. I happened to school with my sister. She told me to come tag along. And I had just recently moved home and I was a little, little disconnected. I'd gone off to school for four and a half years and I lived in Europe for a couple of years. I come home and uh, just was trying to get my life going when my wife and I had recently married. And, Went through some stuff, and so I was just focused on me, myself, and I. You know, I wasn't looking at a big picture. And uh, went to, out there, and he started talking about these things, and he was pounding poi, and that's actually the first time I had seen it done. Mm. But I knew he hadn't actually pounded before, but there was an older Hawaiian man who he was pounding with, and I had met the Hawaiian man before because he was my grandmother's contemporary. They were mm. from Milui, a small fishing village. And so I knew he was the real deal, old Kanaka. Mm-hmm. The other guy was kind of a generation who hadn't had it, but was mm-hmm. pounding makalo. And, um, and he was talking, like, to me, it was like this crazy talk, you know, and I had gone to Kamehameha schools and was a proud graduate, and he had gone as well, and he was saying stuff like, yeah, but Kamehameha schools, that's not a Hawaiian school. It's a school for Hawaiians, but I never learned nothing Hawaiian at that school. Started talking about it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then Kamehameha schools, they got this and this and that land, but how come get all these other Hawaiians this and that, and they're not helping that? So at, at first I was like, hey, who's this punk talking bad about Kamehameha schools, you know? Mm-hmm. Then as the day went on, I realized, you know, everything this guy is saying is true. And he completely switched my whole paradigm. And um, that day was a powerful, a powerful experience. And when I look back now, I attribute much of what we're doing now to that one-time experience. Mm. So... Here, how are we impacting people? Yeah, that's what we, that's the million dollar question because, you know, we got to, as a nonprofit, we got to gather yeah, data sure, and be course, able to, sure. you know, show our funders <laughs> that all these wonderful things are happening mm-hmm. and we're making this tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I can't quantify that. Right. You, you just can't add it all up. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, to be quite, I know we're making an impact and mm-hmm. I know it's deep and we are doing a lot. Don't get, right. please, please know that we're working really hard to collect that information, to mm-hmm. gather it, to synthesize it, mm-hmm. and to share that out mm-hmm. um, in ways more than just talking story. Mm-hmm. And we're working hard on that. We're really putting an effort into that because we believe that we need to demonstrate impact mm-hmm. so that the larger world out there understands that there's there's amazing things taking place. And so that these places are not, again, just niceties. So that they're seeing as, like, this should be a vital part, this should be a common part of the education for every student in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who think like that. Mm -hmm. But until we can collectively demonstrate that, you know, on paper, you know, graph some, whatever, you know, 
whatever those guys need to see right. until we can articulate that to them and they can mm -hmm. understand it they're not going to support it mm -hmm. but once we can start to get good at that then we can start to shift and get more and more support in, mm -hmm. that, in that arena so we are working hard and mm -hmm. I don't want to undermine that my wife would really scold me <laughs> but but She'll how can I demonstrate that type of impact mm -hmm. like my experience at Ka'ala 22 years ago mm -hmm. right. with what I'm doing today right that's really hard. Mm -hmm. So I trust because that's happened to me. I trust that that's happening here as well. Right. And I know it's happening because people have said things to that extent. Mm -hmm. To myself, to mm -hmm. Pomai, we hear it. We mm -hmm. hear it all the time. And if we were to really have the time and money, we could hire on 10 people to talk to people and trace mm -hmm. them for five years mm -hmm. and track them and, right. you know. Mm -hmm. That's what it takes. That's what they're looking sure. for. Well, right. what about the kid? These kids who come in. Where were they at? And where they? Well, where are they in five years from now? Mm -hmm. Give me five million so I can hire exactly. people to to track that. You mm -hmm. know, if you want me to spend all my energy doing that, I kind of do this. Right. So you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of that. We gotta we gotta push back a little bit. You know, and let Absolutely. them know. Sure. Let them know that it's tough. Right. Gathering that information. Right. And the impact um, isn't all, it's, it's intangible so often, or yeah. it's not immediately apparent, and yeah. not everything is quantifiable, no, right? No, no, but we are working in that direction, and so um, I just can leave that with you. Right. Um, anything you'd want to share about projects moving forward or a vision of expansion at this point? I think moving forward, we're running out of land to clear, so maybe we've got to find more land. Mm -hmm. We've always seen this as, we knew that a part of our mission is to really keep put our hands on the plow and, and create this gathering place we didn't really create it but to to facilitate the creation of a gathering place like this we want to do the best job we can so that um, when people come here just from just from being here you know like for a lot of the, the, the at-risk kids who come here or you know a lot of them we got a bunch of kids I got a, in fact, a group from Farrington these kids all live in the housing out there. Mm -hmm. They don't see greenery. Yeah. But they're all like from Samoa and, and right. Tonga mm -hmm. and, and Micronesia. Right. They come here and, and I know just being here, just coming onto the Aina, that is a paradigm changer. Yeah. You know? So we've always felt that if we could provide that type of place and that we could, um, that this would be used as an inspiration mm -hmm. for other people other areas and with that that would then um, provide greater opportunities not necessarily for ourselves you know we have plenty mm -hmm. to do here sure but for these types of this movement to continue on so that's where it's really at and I think for 2018 one of our major goals is to do a lot more collaboration mm -hmm. with other organizations mm -hmm. to you know before you can start to collaborate and do work with them and and start to create this collective voice and movement to, to link arms and to really so that we are a movement and we define ourselves as such and it's laid out um, you know we've got to build relationship first so that's so you have to be very intentional you have to spend time and energy and that's that's a lot of resources um, doing that which we, we weren't able to do in the past and we could probably still be here and still well we would still be here there's plenty to do but we want to be more purposeful and say, no, we're going to meet up like with these guys. Mm -hmm. They're going to come over and mm -hmm. we're going to go to other sites. And, and this, just in the talking, you know, you're, you're around the people who are they're doing different work. They're doing fish pond. We're doing, but we're doing the same work because mm -hmm. it's really not about the growing of kalo. Mm -hmm. And it, for them, it's not about the growing of fish. Mm -hmm. It's about growing the well-being of our community.
that's that's the goal. That's the big goal. Right. They're doing it in their means. We're doing it in our means, but mm -hmm. we're linking up. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things moving forward that mm -hmm. we um, are jazzed about. And then raising up our, our hui. We've got an amazing crew here and, and raising them up so that they understand the, the tremendous leadership capacity that they have mm -hmm. and them stepping into that. Mm -hmm. So really raising up our, our little you know, special forces army here. Mm -hmm. That's the way we see it. We'd rather go deeper and have a small crew of special forces than have a whole brigade. Mm -hmm. you know? That's our mm -hmm. analogy. I mean, sure. going to war. I use that yeah. as we're, we're going to battle. Yeah. And that's how we see ourselves being uh, successful. So that's kind of some of the, that's on our to-do and on our like projection list for this year. Continuing to do what we do, getting better at it. We keep saying we're going to limit the amount of people we're going to kind of, but last year, I forget, I think we had like 16 school groups and we said, okay, that's like, that's it. And I think this year we got like 48 school groups. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and then, you know, finding the balance too, making sure we don't kill ourselves in the process and taking time to, for our own well-being, you know, because it takes a lot of energy to work with people in groups um, and just being aware of that. And I think we're, we're, we're pretty good. I think my wife and I, she works really, really hard. She's working really hard right now. She's got like three grants she's writing, a couple end of the year reports, and it's you know, right during the holidays where we wanted to like kick back. And right. Well, thank you so much for everything that you shared. If folks want to support the project in any kind of way, how could they get in touch or get involved? Well, um, you could go online and check out the name of our organization. It's Ho'oku Aina. So it's, mm -hmm. I know it's a long tongue twister. It's H O O K U A A I N A. Um.org mm -hmm. and, and check us out. I mean, there's a host of ways that you can help us out, you know, from coming and doing a community day here to, you know, eat poi, come mm -hmm. by poi, you know, mm -hmm. if you're here on Oahu and you, you, you're in the neighborhood, buy raw kalo. Mm -hmm. uh, start to eat, and if you're not buying from us, just eat kalo, mm -hmm. eat from other people, you know, um, make it a part of your diet. Um, of course, you know, if you've got a million dollars in your back pocket and you think we're we're worthy of it you know we won't say no um, but there's ways sure. that you can be a part of, of you know supporting us financially as well so there's a mm -hmm. you know, making peruse through that and decide sure thank you for sharing that <laughs> yeah well thank you so much for your time and energy and everything that you've shared and for this incredible work that you're doing here oh mahalo you just heard from uncle dean wilhelm at ho'okua aina now, I know this conversation may have evoked curiosity for you. What were the staple foods of your ancestors historically? What were the staple foods of the peoples of the land base where you currently live if you're a settler? Are there any current threats to your ancestral foodways or to those of the areas where you're currently located? Wherever you're tuning in from, are there land-based projects that the folks native to that place are working on that you could be supporting? I hope this dialogue inspires you to find out. If you'd like to learn more about the topics that Uncle Dean and I discussed, check out liberationspring.com for our upcoming class titled Kitchen Counterintelligence. All the course materials will be available for free on the site, and you're welcome to apply for our online class from anywhere in the world. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. 
I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours. Yeah. Freedom is ours. <laughs>